Book Six, Chapter Eight of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Six, Chapter Eight. Dreadful Sufferings of the Besieged. Spirit of Guatemozin. Murderous Assault. Capture of Guatemozin. Termination of the Siege. Reflections. There was no occasion to resort to artificial means to precipitate the ruin of the Aztecs. It was accelerated every hour by causes more potent than those arising from mere human agency. There they were, pent up in their close and suffocating quarters, nobles, commoners, and slaves, men, women, and children, some in houses, more frequently in hovels, for this part of the city was not the best, others in the open air in canoes or in the streets, shivering in the cold rains of the night and scorched by the burning heat of day the ordinary means of sustaining life were long since gone they wandered about in search of anything however unwholesome or revolting that might mitigate the fierce gnawings of hunger some hunted for insects and worms on the borders of the lake or gathered the salt weeds and moss from its bottom while at times they might be seen casting a wistful look at the hills beyond which many of them had left to share the fate of their brethren in the capital. To their credit, it is said by the Spanish writers that they were not driven in their extremity to violate the laws of nature by feeding on one another. But unhappily this is contradicted by the Indian authorities, who state that many a mother, in her agony, devoured the offspring which she had no longer the means of supporting. This is recorded of more than one siege in history, and it is the more probable here where the sensibilities must have been blunted by familiarity with the brutal practices of the national superstition. But all was not sufficient, and hundreds of famished wretches died every day from extremity of suffering. Some dragged themselves into the houses and drew their last breath alone and in silence. Others sank down in the public streets. Wherever they died, there they were left. There was no one to bury or remove them. Familiarity with the spectacle made men indifferent to it. They looked on in dumb despair, waiting for their own turn. There was no complaint, no lamentation, but deep, unutterable woe. If in other quarters of the town the corpses might have been scattered over the streets, here they were gathered in heaps. They lay so thick, says Bernal Diaz, that one could not tread except among the bodies. A man could not set his foot down, says Cortes, yet more strongly, unless on the corpse of an Indian. They were piled one upon another, the living mingled with the dead. They stretched themselves on the bodies of their friends, and lay down to sleep there. Death was everywhere. The city was a vast charnel-house, in which all was hastening to decay and decomposition. A poisonous steam arose from the mass of putrefaction, under the action of alternate rain and heat, which so tainted the whole atmosphere, that the Spaniards, including the general himself, in their brief visits to the quarter, were made ill by it, and it bred a pestilence that swept off even greater numbers than the famine. In the midst of these awful scenes, the young emperor of the Aztecs remained, according to all accounts, calm and courageous. With his fair capital laid in ruins before his eyes, his nobles and faithful subjects dying around him, his territory rent away foot by foot, till scarce enough remained for him to stand on, he rejected every invitation to capitulate, and showed the same indomitable spirit as at the commencement of the siege. When Cortes, in the hope that the extremities of the besieged would incline them to listen to an accommodation, 
persuaded a noble prisoner to bear to Guatimozin his proposals to that effect, the fierce young monarch, according to the general, ordered him at once to be sacrificed. It was a Spaniard, we must remember, who tells the story. Cortes, who had suspended hostilities for several days, in the vain hope that the distresses of the Mexicans would bend them to submission, now determined to drive them to it by a general assault. Cooped up as they were within a narrow quarter of the city, their position favored such an attempt. He commanded Alvarado to hold himself in readiness, and directed Sandoval, who, besides the causeway, had charge of the fleet, which lay off the Tlatelolcan district, to support the attack by a cannonade on the houses near the water. He then led his forces into the city, or rather across the horrid waste that now encircled it. On entering the Indian precincts, he was met by several of the chiefs, who, stretching forth their emaciated arms, exclaimed, You are the children of the sun, but the sun is swift in his course. Why are you, then, so tardy? Why do you delay so long to put an end to our miseries? Rather kill us at once, that we may go to our god, Huitzilopochtli, who waits for us in heaven to give us rest from our sufferings. Cortes was moved by their piteous appeal, and answered, that he desired not their death, but their submission. Why does your master refuse to treat with me, he said, when a single hour will suffice for me to crush him and all his people? He then urged them to request Guatimozin to confer with him, with the assurance that he might do it in safety, as his person should not be molested. The nobles, after some persuasion, undertook the mission, and it was received by the young monarch in a manner which showed, if the anecdote before related of him be true, that misfortune had, at length, asserted some power over his haughty spirit. He consented to the interview, though not to have it take place on that day but the following, in the great square of Tlatelolco. Cortes, well satisfied, immediately withdrew from the city, and resumed his position on the causeway. The next morning he presented himself at the place appointed, having previously stationed Alvarado there with a strong corps of infantry to guard against treachery. The stone platform in the center of the square was covered with mats and carpets, and a banquet was prepared to refresh the famished monarch and his nobles. Having made these arrangements, he awaited the hour of the interview. But Guatemozin, instead of appearing himself, sent his nobles, the same who had brought to him the general's invitation, and who now excused their master's absence on the plea of illness. Cortes, though disappointed, gave a courteous reception to the envoys, considering that it might still afford the means of opening a communication with the emperor. He persuaded them without much entreaty to partake of the good cheer spread before them, which they did with a veracity that told how severe had been their abstinence. He then dismissed them with a seasonal supply of provisions for their master, pressing him to consent to an interview, without which it was impossible their differences could be adjusted. The Indian envoys returned in a short time, bearing with them a present of fine cotton fabrics, of no great value, from Guatemozin, who still declined to meet with the Spanish general. Cortes, though deeply chagrined, was unwilling to give up the point. He will surely come, he said to the envoys, when he sees that I suffer you to go and come unharmed, you who have been my steady enemies, no less than himself, throughout the war. He has nothing to fear from me. He again parted with them, promising to receive their answer the following day. On the next morning the Aztec chiefs, entering the Christian quarters, announced to Cortes that Guatemozin would confer with him at noon in the market-place. The general was punctual at the hour, but without success. Neither monarch nor ministers appeared there. 
it was plain that the Indian prince did not care to trust the promises of his enemy. A thought of Montezuma may have passed across his mind. After he had waited three hours, the general's patience was exhausted, and, as he learned that the Mexicans were busy in preparations for defense, he made immediate dispositions for the assault. The Confederates had been left without the walls, for he did not care to bring them in sight of the quarry before he was ready to slip the leash. He now ordered them to join him, and, supported by Alvarado's division, marched at once into the enemy's quarters. He found them prepared to receive him. Their most able-bodied warriors were thrown into the van, covering their feeble and crippled comrades. Women were seen occasionally mingling in the ranks, and, as well as children, thronged the azoteas, where, with famine-stricken visages and haggard eyes, they scowled defiance and hatred on their invaders. As the Spaniards advanced, the Mexicans set up a fierce war-cry, and sent off clouds of arrows with their accustomed spirit, while the women and boys rained down darts and stones from their elevated position on the terraces. But the missiles were sent by hands too feeble to do much damage, and when the squadrons closed, the loss of strength became still more sensible in the Aztecs. Their blows fell feebly and with doubtful aim, though some, it is true, of stronger constitution, or gathering strength from despair, maintained to the last a desperate fight. The arquebusiers now poured in a deadly fire. The brigantines replied by successive volleys in the opposite quarter. The besieged, hemmed in like deer surrounded by the huntsmen, were brought down on every side. The carnage was horrible. The ground was heaped up with slain, until the maddened combatants were obliged to climb over the human mounds to get at one another. The miry soil was saturated with blood, which ran off like water, and dyed the canals themselves with crimson. All was uproar and terrible confusion. The hideous yells of the barbarians, the oaths and execrations of the Spaniards, the cries of the wounded, the shrieks of women and children, the heavy blows of the conquerors, the death struggle of their victims, the rapid reverberating echoes of the musketry, the hissing of innumerable missiles, the crash and crackling of blazing buildings crushing hundreds in their ruins, the blinding volumes of dust and sulphurous smoke shrouding all in their gloomy canopy, made a scene appalling even to the soldiers of Cortes, steeled as they were by many a rough passage of war, and by a long familiarity with blood and violence. The piteous cries of the women and children in particular, says the general, were enough to break one's heart. He commanded that they should be spared, and that all who asked it should receive quarter. He particularly urged this on the Confederates, and placed men among them to restrain their violence. But he had set an engine in motion too terrible to be controlled. It were as easy to curb the hurricane in its fury as the passions of an infuriated horde of savages. Never did I see so pitiless a race, he exclaims, or anything wearing the form of man so destitute of humanity. They made no distinction of sex or age, and in this hour of vengeance seemed to be requiting the hoarded wrongs of a century. At length, sated with slaughter, the Spanish commander sounded a retreat. It was full time, if, according to his own statement, we may hope it was an exaggeration, forty thousand souls had perished. Yet their fate was to be envied in comparison with that of those who survived. Through the long night which followed, no movement was perceptible in the Aztec quarter. No light was seen there, no sound was heard, save the low moaning of some wounded or dying wretch writhing in his agony. All was dark and silent, the darkness of the grave. The last blow seemed to have completely stunned them. They had parted with hope and sat in sullen despair, 
like men waiting in silence the stroke of the executioner. Yet, for all this, they showed no disposition to submit. Every new injury had sunk deeper into their souls, and filled them with a deeper hatred of their enemy. Fortune, friends, kindred, home, all were gone. They were content to throw away life itself, now that they had nothing more to live for. Far different was the scene in the Christian camp, where, elated with their recent successes, all was alive with bustle and preparation for the morrow. Bonfires were seen blazing along the causeways, lights gleamed from tents and barracks, and the sounds of music and merriment, borne over the waters, proclaimed the joy of the soldiers at the prospect of so soon terminating their wearisome campaign. On the following morning the Spanish commander again mustered his forces, having decided to follow up the blow of the preceding day before the enemy should have time to rally, and at once to put an end to the war. He had arranged with Alvarado, on the evening previous, to occupy the market-place of Tlateloco, and the discharge of an arquebus was to be the signal for a simultaneous assault. Sandoval was to hold the northern causeway, and, with the fleet, to watch the movements of the Indian emperor, and to intercept the flight to the mainland, which Cortes knew he meditated. To allow him to effect this would be to leave a formidable enemy in his own neighborhood, who might at any time kindle the flame of insurrection throughout the country. He ordered Sandoval, however, to do no harm to the royal person, and not to fire on the enemy at all, except in self-defense. It was on the memorable 13th of August, 1521, that Cortes led his warlike array for the last time across the black and blasted environs which lay around the Indian capital. On entering the Aztec precincts, he paused, willing to afford its wretched inmates one more chance of escape, before striking the fatal blow. He obtained an interview with some of the principal chiefs, and expostulated with them on the conduct of their prince. He surely will not, said the general, see you all perish, when he can so easily save you. He then urged them to prevail on Guatimozine to hold a conference with him, repeating the assurances of his personal safety. The messengers went on their mission, and soon returned with the Siwakotl at their head, a magistrate of high authority among the Mexicans. He said, with a melancholy air, in which his own disappointment was visible, that Guatimozin was ready to die where he was, but would hold no interview with the Spanish commander, adding in a tone of resignation, It is for you to work your pleasure. Go then, replied the stern conqueror, and prepare your countrymen for death. Their hour is come. He still postponed the assault for several hours, but the impatience of his troops at this delay was heightened by the rumor that Guatimozin and his nobles were preparing to escape with their effects in the paraguas and canoes which were moored on the margin of the lake. Convinced of the fruitlessness and impolicy of further procrastination, Cortes made his final dispositions for the attack and took his own station on an azotea which commanded the theater of operations. When the assailants came into the presence of the enemy, they found them huddled together in the utmost confusion, all ages and sexes, in masses so dense that they nearly forced one another over the brink of the causeways into the water below. Some had climbed on the terraces, others feebly supported themselves against the walls of the buildings. Their squalid and tattered garments gave a wildness to their appearance, which still further heightened the ferocity of their expressions, as they glared on their enemy with eyes in which hate was mingled with despair. When the Spaniards had approached within bowshot, the Aztecs let off a flight of impotent missiles, showing to the last the resolute spirit, though they had lost the strength, of their better days. 
the fatal signal was then given by the discharge of an arquebus speedily followed by peals of heavy ordnance the rattle of firearms and the hellish shouts of the confederates as they sprang upon their victims it is unnecessary to stain the page with a repetition of the horrors of the preceding day some of the wretched aztecs threw themselves into the water and were picked up by the canoes others sunk and were suffocated in the canals the number of these became so great that a bridge was made of their dead bodies over which the assailants could climb to the opposite banks others again especially the women begged for mercy which as the chroniclers assure us was everywhere granted by the spaniards and contrary to the instructions and entreaties of cortez everywhere refused by the confederates while this work of butchery was going on numbers were observed pushing off in the barks that lined the shore and making the best of their way across the lake they were constantly intercepted by the brigantines which broke through the flimsy array of boats sending off their volleys to the right and left as the crews of the latter hotly assailed them the battle raged as fiercely on the lake as on the land many of the indian vessels were shattered and overturned some few however under cover of the smoke which rolled darkly over the waters succeeded in clearing themselves of the turmoil and were fast nearing the opposite shore sandoval had particularly charged his captains to keep an eye on the movements of any vessel in which it was all probable that guatimozin might be concealed at this crisis three or four of the largest paraguas were seen skimming over the water and making their way rapidly across the lake a captain named garci olguin who had command of one of the best sailors in their fleet instantly gave them chase the wind was favorable and every moment he gained on the fugitives who pulled their oars with a vigor that despair alone could have given but it was in vain and after a short race olguin coming alongside of one of the paraguas which whether from its appearance or from information he had received he conjectured might bear the indian emperor ordered his men to level their crossbows at the boat but before they could discharge them a cry arose from those in it that their lord was on board at the same moment a young warrior armed with a buckler and maquahuitl rose up as if to beat off the assailants but as the spanish captain ordered his men not to shoot he dropped his weapons and exclaimed i am guatemozin lead me to malinche i am his prisoner but let no harm come to my wife and my followers olguin assured him that his wishes would be respected and assisted him to get on board the brigantine followed by his wife and attendants these were twenty in number consisting of juanaco the deposed lord of tezcuco the lord of tlacopan and several other caciques and dignitaries whose rank probably had secured them some exemption from the general calamities of the siege when the captives were seated on the deck of his vessel Bolguin requested the aztec prince to put an end to the combat by commanding his people in the other canoes to surrender but with a dejected air he replied it is not necessary they will fight no longer when they see that their prince is taken he spoke truth the news of guatimozin's capture spread rapidly through the fleet and on shore where the mexicans were still engaged in conflict with their enemies it ceased however at once they made no further resistance and those on the water quickly followed the brigantines which conveyed their captive monarch to land meanwhile sandoval on receiving tidings of the capture brought his own brigantine alongside olguin's and demanded the royal prisoner be surrendered to him but his captain claimed him as his prize a dispute rose between the parties each anxious to have the glory of the deed and perhaps the privilege of commemorating it on his escutcheon 
the controversy continued so long that it reached the ears of cortez who in his station on the azotea had learned with no little satisfaction the capture of his enemy he instantly sent orders to his wrangling officers to bring guatemozin before him that he might adjust the difference between them he charged them at the same time to treat their prisoner with respect he then made preparations for the interview caused the terrace to be carpeted with crimson cloth and matting and a table to be spread with provisions of which the unhappy aztec stood so much in need his lovely indian mistress doña marina was present to act as interpreter she had stood by his side through all the troubled scenes of the conquest and she was there now to witness its triumphant termination guatemozin on landing was escorted by a company of infantry to the presence of the spanish commander he mounted the azotea with a calm and steady step and was easily to be distinguished from his attendant nobles though his full dark eye was no longer lighted up with its accustomed fire and his features wore an expression of passive resignation that told little of the fierce and fiery spirit that burned within his head was large his limbs well proportioned his complexion fairer than those of his bronze-coloured nation and his whole deportment singularly mild and engaging cortez came forward with a dignified and studied courtesy to receive him the aztec monarch probably knew the person of his conqueror for he first broke silence by saying i have done all that i could do to defend myself and my people i am now reduced to this state you will deal with me malinche as you list then laying his hand on the hilt of a poniard stuck in the general's belt he added with vehemence better dispatch me with this and rid me of life at once cortez was filled with admiration at the proud bearing of the young barbarian showing in his reverses a spirit worthy of an ancient roman fear not he replied you shall be treated with all honor you have defended your capital like a brave warrior a spaniard knows how to respect valor even in an enemy he then inquired of him where he had left the princess his wife and being informed that she still remained under protection of a spanish guard on board the brigantine the general sent to have her escorted to his presence she was the youngest daughter of montezuma and was hardly yet on the verge of womanhood on the accession of her cousin guatemozin to the throne she had been wedded to him as his lawful wife she was kindly received by cortez who showed her the respectful attentions suited to her rank her birth no doubt gave her an additional interest in his eyes and he may have felt some touch of compunction as he gazed on the daughter of the unfortunate montezuma he invited his royal captives to partake of the refreshments which their exhausted condition rendered so necessary meanwhile the spanish commander made his dispositions for the night ordering Sandoval to escort the prisoners to Cohoacan, whither he proposed himself immediately to follow. The other captains and Alvarado were to draw off their forces to their respective quarters. It was impossible for them to continue in the capital, where the poisonous effluvia from the unburied carcasses loaded the air with infection. A small guard only was stationed to keep order in the wasted suburbs. It was the hour of vespers when Guatimozin surrendered, and the siege might be considered as then concluded thus after a siege of nearly three months duration unmatched in history for the constancy and courage of the besieged seldom surpassed for the severity of its sufferings fell the renowned capital of the aztecs unmatched it may be truly said for constancy and courage when we recollect that the door of capitulation on the most honorable terms was left open to them throughout the whole blockade and that sternly rejecting every proposal of their enemy 
they, to a man, preferred to die rather than surrender. More than three centuries had elapsed since the Aztecs, a poor and wandering tribe from the far northwest, had come on the plateau. There they built their miserable collection of huts on the spot, as tradition tells us, prescribed by the oracle. Their conquests, at first confined to their immediate neighborhood, gradually covered the valley, then crossing the mountains, swept over the broad extent of the tableland, descended its precipitous sides, and rolled onwards to the Mexican Gulf and the distant confines of Central America. Their wretched capital, meanwhile, keeping pace with the enlargement of territory, had grown into a flourishing city, filled with buildings, monuments of art, and a numerous population that gave it the first rank among the capitals of the western world. At this crisis came over another race from the remote east, strangers like themselves, whose coming had also been predicted by the oracle, and, appearing on the plateau, assailed them in the very zenith of their prosperity, and blotted them out from the map of nations forever. The whole story has the air of fable rather than of history, a legend of romance, a tale of the genii. Yet we cannot regret the fall of an empire which did so little to promote the happiness of its subjects, or the real interests of humanity. Notwithstanding the lustre thrown over its latter days by the glorious defense of its capital, by the mild munificence of Montezuma, by the dauntless heroism of Guatemozin, the Aztecs were emphatically a fierce and brutal race, little calculated in their best aspects to excite our sympathy and regard. Their civilization, such as it was, was not their own, but reflected, perhaps imperfectly, from a race whom they had succeeded in the land. It was, in respect to the Aztecs, a generous graft on a vicious stock, and could have brought no fruit to perfection. They ruled over their wide domains with a sword instead of a scepter. They did nothing to ameliorate the condition, or in any way promote the progress of their vassals. Their vassals were serfs, used only to minister to their pleasure, held in awe by armed garrisons, ground to the dust by imposts in peace, by military conscriptions in war. They did not, like the Romans, whom they resembled in the nature of their conquests, extend the rights of citizenship to the conquered. They did not amalgamate them into one great nation, with common rights and interests. They held them as aliens, even those who in the valley were gathered round the very walls of the capital. The Aztec metropolis, the heart of the monarchy, had not a sympathy, not a pulsation, in common with the rest of the body politic. It was a stranger in its own land. The Aztecs not only did not advance the condition of their vassals, but, morally speaking, they did much to degrade it. How can a nation, where human sacrifices prevail, and especially when combined with cannibalism, further the march of civilization? How can the interests of humanity be consulted where man is leveled to the rank of the brutes that perish? The influence of the Aztecs introduced their gloomy superstition into lands before unacquainted with it, or where, at least, it was not established in any great strength. The example of the capital was contagious. As the latter increased in opulence, the religious celebrations were conducted with still more terrible magnificence. In the same manner as the gladiatorial shows of the Romans increased in pomp with the increasing splendor of the capital, men became familiar with scenes of horror and the most loathsome abominations. Women and children, the whole nation, became familiar with and assisted at them. The heart was hardened, the manners were made ferocious, the feeble light of civilization transmitted from a milder race was growing fainter and fainter, as thousands and thousands of miserable victims throughout the empire were yearly fattened in its cages, 
sacrificed on its altars, dressed and served at its banquets. The whole land was converted into a vast human shambles. The empire of the Aztecs did not fall before its time. Whether these unparalleled outrages furnish a sufficient plea to the Spaniards for their invasion, whether, with the Protestant, are we content to find a warrant for it in the natural rights and demands of civilization, or, with the Roman Catholic, in the good pleasure of the Pope, on the one or other of which grounds the conquests by most Christian nations in the East and the West have been defended, it is unnecessary to discuss, as it has already been considered in a former chapter. It is more material to inquire whether, assuming the right, the conquest of Mexico was conducted with a proper regard to the claims of humanity. And here we must admit that, with all allowance for the ferocity of the age and the laxity of its principles, there are passages which every Spaniard, who cherishes the fame of his countrymen, would be glad to see expunged from their history, passages not to be vindicated on the score of self-defense, or of necessity of any kind, and which must forever leave a dark spot on the annals of the conquest. And yet, taken as a whole, the invasion up to the capture of the capital was conducted on principles less revolting to humanity than most, perhaps than any, of the other conquests of the Castilian crown in the New World. It may seem slight praise to say that the followers of Cortes used no bloodhounds to hunt down their wretched victims, as in some other parts of the continent, nor exterminated a peaceful and submissive population in mere wantonness of cruelty, as in the islands. Yet it is something that they were not so far infected by the spirit of the age, and that their swords were rarely stained with blood unless it was indispensable to the success of their enterprise. Even in the last siege of the capital, the sufferings of the Aztecs, terrible as they were, do not imply any unusual cruelty in the victors. They were not greater than those inflicted on their own countrymen at home, in many a memorable instance, by the most polished nations, not merely of ancient times, but of our own. They were the inevitable consequences which follow from war, when, instead of being confined to its legitimate field, it is brought home to the hearthstone, to the peaceful community of the city, its burghers untrained to arms, its women and children yet more defenseless. In the present instance, indeed, the sufferings of the besieged were in a great degree to be charged on themselves, on their patriotic but desperate self-devotion. It was not the desire, as certainly it was not the interest, of the Spaniards to destroy the capital or its inhabitants. When any of these fell into their hands, they were kindly entertained, their wants supplied, and every means taken to infuse into them a spirit of conciliation. And this, too, it should be remembered, in despite of the dreadful doom to which they consigned their Christian captives. The gates of a fair capitulation were kept open, though unavailingly, to the last hour. The right of conquest necessarily implies that of using whatever force may be necessary for overcoming resistance to the assertion of that right. For the Spaniards to have done otherwise than they did would have been to abandon the siege, and with it the conquest of the country. To have suffered the inhabitants, with their high-spirited monarch, to escape, would but have prolonged the miseries of war by transferring it to another and more inaccessible quarter. They literally, as far as the success of the expedition was concerned, had no choice. If our imagination is struck with the amount of suffering in this, and in similar scenes of the conquest, it should be borne in mind that it is a natural result of the great masses of men engaged in the conflict. The amount of suffering does not in itself show the amount of cruelty which caused it, and it is but justice to the conquerors of Mexico 
to say that the very brilliancy and importance of their exploits have given a melancholy celebrity to their misdeeds, and thrown them into somewhat bolder relief than strictly belongs to them. It is proper that thus much should be stated, not to excuse their excesses, but that we may be enabled to take a more impartial estimate of their conduct, as compared with that of other nations under similar circumstances, and that we may not visit them with peculiar obloquy for evils which necessarily flow from the condition of war. By none has this obloquy been poured with such unsparing hand on the heads of the old conquerors as by their own descendants, the modern Mexicans. Itzlil Sochitl's editor, Bustamante, concludes an animated invective against the invaders with recommending that a monument should be raised on the spot, now dry land, where Guatimozin was taken, which, as the proposed inscription itself intimates, should, quote, devote to eternal excretion the detested memory of those banditi, end quote. Venido de los Españas, page 52, nota. One would suppose that the pure Aztec blood, uncontaminated by a drop of Castilian, flowed in the veins of this indignant editor and his compatriots, or, at least, that their sympathies for the conquered race would make them anxious to reinstate them in their ancient rights. Notwithstanding these bursts of generous indignation, however, which plentifully season the writings of the Mexicans of our day, we do not find that the revolution, or any of its numerous brood of pronunciamientos, has resulted in restoring them to an acre of their ancient territory. Whatever may be thought of the conquest in a moral view, regarded as a military achievement, it must fill us with astonishment. That a handful of adventurers, indifferently armed and equipped, should have landed on the shores of a powerful empire, inhabited by a fierce and warlike race, and in defiance of the reiterated prohibitions of its sovereign, have forced their way into the interior, that they should have done this without knowledge of the language or the land, without chart or compass to guide them, without any idea of the difficulties they were to encounter, totally uncertain whether the next step might bring them on a hostile nation, or on a desert, feeling their way along the dark as it were, that though nearly overwhelmed by their first encounter with the inhabitants, they should have still pressed on to the capital of the empire, and, having reached it, thrown themselves unhesitatingly into the midst of their enemies, that, so far from being daunted by the extraordinary spectacle there exhibited of power and civilization, they should have been but the more confirmed in their original design, that they should have seized the monarch, have executed his ministers before the eyes of his subjects, and, when driven forth with ruin from the gates, have gathered their scattered wreck together, and, after a system of operations pursued with consummate policy and daring, have succeeded in overturning the capital, and establishing their sway over the country, that all this should have been so effected by a mere handful of indigent adventurers, is in fact little short of the miraculous, too startling for the probabilities demanded by fiction, and without a parallel in the pages of history. Yet this must not be understood too literally, for it would be unjust to the Aztecs themselves, at least to their military prowess, to regard the conquest as directly achieved by the Spaniards alone. The Indian Empire was in a manner conquered by Indians. The Aztec monarchy fell by the hands of its own subjects, under the direction of European sagacity and science. Had it been united, it might have bidden defiance to the invaders. As it was, the capital was dissevered from the rest of the country, and the bolt, which might have passed off comparatively harmless, had the empire been cemented by a common principle of loyalty and patriotism, now found its way into every crack and crevice of the ill-compacted fabric, 
and buried it in its own ruins. Its fate may serve as a striking proof that a government which does not rest on the sympathies of its subjects cannot long abide, that human institutions, when not connected with human prosperity and progress, must fall, if not before the increasing light of civilization, by the hand of violence, by violence from within, if not from without, and who shall lament their fall? End of Book 6, Chapter 8